You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How is everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So let me just tell you that I have found the greatest ice cream in all the world. There's no argument or comparison to me. And this is the stuff. Here it is. It's called Three Twins. You may have never heard of it, but it really is the greatest ice cream ever. And I'm going to tell you where Three Twins is found in the frozen food section at Whole Foods. Now, some of you, if you've been around Calvary for a while, you know how much I enjoy talking smack about Whole Foods and their communist prices. But this, I, I got to give credit where credit is due. I mean, this stuff is legit. It is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's all made with like real sugar and it's all fair trade and fair trade cocoa so you can all feel like you're helping people while you stuff your face. And so, so the way I found this ice cream was one day I was, uh, during the week, I was coming home from church and my wife said, could you stop at Whole Foods on the way home? And I said, sure. She texts me a list and when I get there, they were doing this thing that they called an ice cream social which is just code for free ice cream. And so I went, uh, so I go there and talk to the people. I made myself a Sunday, because as you know, Sunday is the Lord's Day. And uh, <laughs> so it was the most amazing ice cream I had ever eaten. So what I did was, is that I went and got my stuff, and I was watching the guy who was working the Sunday, the, the ice cream thing, when he went on break. I walked up, and I'm like, hey, what do we have here? And so... And then I had another Sunday, And uh, so anyway, I bought some of this. This is the chocolate malt, which I really believe is the greatest ice cream of all time. I bought a pint of it. And uh, now typically what I do, and you, you live your life the way you want to live your life, but I wait till my kids go to bed before I break out the treats. Um, that's how you do it. That's a little parenting tip right there. Uh, you either do that, or if you want to eat it in front of your kids and they ask you for a bite, you just say, I can't, Mama, it's spicy. So... <laughs> There we go. There we go. There are geniuses amongst us, so we're on the same wavelength. So anyway, so now, so here's what happens. That one night, so I get my, <laughs> I get my, my chocolate malt ice cream, and uh, but what happens is when my kids fall asleep, my wife fell asleep, and we were supposed to split this pint of chocolate malt, and so now I have this. I'm in a dilemma. What do I do? We tend to operate under the if you snooze, you lose principle at our house. And she was literally snoozing. So I decide, look, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to eat half. It's just so hard to find the exact place where half is. Now, so anyway, I don't want to bore you with the details because I was watching a baseball game in the middle of all of this. Long story short, I ate the whole thing. And so uh, then my wife woke up like an hour later. She comes out. She's like, wow, I can't believe I fell asleep. Hey, where's the uh, ice cream? And I'm like, ice cream? What ice cream? What, are you what, what, what is this you speak of? And, uh, and she's like, you know, the three twins ice cream we were going to share. And I, now, and I, 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 you know, I panicked. And... Um, because I had eaten the whole thing and then destroyed the evidence. Like, I had taken it outside to, like, the big garbage can. Like, I just had to, like, I didn't want any kind of, like, 
I did not want my wife to go law and order on this. And, you know, I hear like the dunk dunk in the background. I didn't want any of that. So anyway, I'm like, she's like, you know, the three twins ice cream. I'm like, I don't know anything about three twins, but there's that nasty coconut ice cream you buy. You can eat that. Anyway, and she's like, you don't know anything about it? Uh, and she's like, what does your shirt say? Now, a little bit of context. So my, I have a friend who's a pastor in Vermont. And he, for, by the way, this was unprovoked. He just said, hey, I put something in the mail for you. And when I, it's a shirt, this green shirt that says, keep Vermont weird. I don't know why he saw that shirt and thought of me, but he just bought it and mailed it to me. So anyway, and this, I loved this shirt and I used to wear it all the time around the house and I, I wore it all the time to go to bed. And um, the problem is what I didn't realize, I had got this huge chocolate stain on it. So it read, keep Vermo weird. So my wife is like, you don't know anything about the ice cream. What does your shirt say? And I look down and then I see Vermo and the big stain. And I'm like, I can explain. She's like, whatever, Vermo. And so, and that's like a thing now. Anything happens in our house, you get caught, you're Vermo. So now, and I, here's, why, here's why I tell you this is, um, is because, partially because it's my penance for not telling the truth. And, and some of it is because if you've ever been caught red-handed, then you know exactly what's happening to the church that we're going to be spending the next season at Calvary looking at. This is essentially what's happening to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. So there's this woman by the name of Chloe. Chloe is friends with the Apostle Paul. She's a, her and her family are members at this church in Corinth, which the Apostle Paul established. They write Paul a letter, and they say, Paul, this church that you established is totally out of control. And by the way, the stuff that was happening at the church at Corinth was completely messed up. Now, I'm going to tell you about that in a second. If I can, let me hit the pause button for a minute and tell you, back up a little bit, and tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth, um, which, the, which is why uh, the, city, the church, where the church was established. For lack of a better term, Corinth was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire minus Blue Man Group. Okay, so the city of Corinth was a really big metropolis in the Roman Empire because of its location. In fact, we'll show you a map here, is that you'll see Corinth is right here, just a little ways away from Athens. And so if you kind of give you an idea, if you're like um, my Middle Eastern map and Eastern Europe. So Israel is right about here and Italy is right about here. And so this is modern day Turkey. This is still Greece. So this is all considered Asia Minor uh, in the ancient world. And so, but Corinth was a metropolis in the Roman Empire because it was, because of its location, it was a key to the trading world. There was heavy traffic by land and by sea, full of merchants. It was people coming and going from all different parts of the world, all different parts of the Roman Empire. It was a melting pot of cultures, not just everyone in the Roman Empire, Greeks, Jews, lots of different people taking up residence in Corinth, and all bringing different lifestyles, values, and different religious beliefs to that region. Now, over the years, Corinth became known for its rampant prostitution. Uh, because a high percentage of the population were slaves, the, there were temples dedicated to Aphrodite and other gods were a big part of that, polyist, that polytheistic culture. And so the, the Corinthians had incorporated this prostitution into, uh, in, in this, um, in, into their, 
their worship, so much so that promiscuous people in the Roman Empire were called Corinthians, even if they weren't from Corinth. It just that became synonymous with a person who was very promiscuous. Now, it's in this context that the Apostle Paul walks in around 51 AD, ready to introduce the gospel of Jesus to a very wild city. Now, here's the thing that's really cool is that we actually know what happened when Paul went to Corinth, because if you read the book of Acts, and if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, Jesus dies, is buried, he rises again from the dead, and he ascends to heaven, and that's usually where the gospels leave us. The book of Acts tell us what happened like right after that. So how was the early church born? And that's what the whole story of the book of Acts, literally called the Acts of the Apostles. And so in the book of Acts chapter 18, we learn about Paul going to Corinth and he gets there. He had just been to Athens and then he gets to Corinth. And what he does is because there's a large Jewish population in Corinth, he starts preaching on the Sabbath days to the Jews, but the Jews weren't very receptive. And so he says, you know what, forget it, I'm going to the Gentiles. And what I think is just hilarious is that he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And you think he's going to go far away. He literally goes next door um, and starts preaching next next door uh, to this guy named Justice. That's the guy's name. He lives next door to the synagogue. And Paul starts preaching at that guy's house. So, But what happens is there's this guy who is the leader of the synagogue whose name is Crispus. Which, by the way, as far as names go... It's kind of a weird name. It's like, what do you think about calling him extra crispy? I don't know. Well, how about we compromise and just call him Crispus? Well, all right, there we are. All right, so now we're on the same page. So anyway, but Crispus becomes a Christian. So he leaves the synagogue and starts working with Paul. So they take a guy named Sosthenes, and he becomes the new leader of the synagogue. Well, Sosthenes wants to make a splash. So he decides he's going to take Paul to court for preaching the gospel. And I'm not even going to tell you what happened. I'm just going to read this without comment. All right? So this is so good. So here's what happens Acts 18. When Gallo was, uh, Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own law, look into it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul remained a good while. I think this story is just fantastic, and it might be a good strategy for people who bring frivolous lawsuits. You bring a frivolous lawsuit, it gets thrown out of court, and we beat you with a stick for wasting everybody's time. Uh, So I'm just throwing that out there. Anyway, so Paul stays in Corinth for about 18 months, which is, I think with the exception of one other time, uh, is longer than he stays at most other places. So he's there for about 18 months, planting the church, About two and a half years later, he's been gone. It's about 55 AD now. He writes this letter because he gets a letter from Chloe's family saying, hey, the church is totally out of control. But here's, this is the part I just can't even wait to tell you, is that here's the thing I think is so cool. Who's helping Paul out? Look at verse one of 1 Corinthians. It says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. The guy who got beat with a stick, apparently um, they, they, they knocked some sense into him. And, uh, and he was, you know, became a believer and now started helping Paul in his d- endeavors in preaching the gospel. 
Now, the thing about the church at Corinth is that they had great teaching. They had all the spiritual gifts in operation in the church. They had diverse people from every background coming to know Jesus. And it sounds like an awesome church, and it was. But they had major problems. They had all kinds of division in the church. They had misunderstandings about God's grace to the point where there's a guy in the church having an affair with his stepmom, and everybody in the church knows about it, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's great. And it's like, not great. Paul, in chapter 5, he's like, what's wrong with you people? Like, everybody knows that's messed up. Anyway, we'll get there. They had church services that were totally out of control to the point where people were having bread and wine at communion and were getting drunk on the wine at communion. File under not cool. So this is, I mean, so these people were suing each other. They had all kinds of false teaching that they were holding on to. This church, I mean, literally could have been a series of episodes on Jerry Springer for all the weird stuff going on. So Paul writes them this letter and tells them that a divided world needs a united church. And the key to being a united church is to have the mind of Christ. And that's one of the things, one of the themes that Paul's going to get into in chapter two. And so what is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is when we think about things the way Jesus thinks about things. Because they were not thinking about anything the way Jesus thought about things. Instead, what they had done is they had allowed the culture to influence the church rather than the church being what influenced the culture around them. And listen, I believe that that's God's message for our church. I believe it's God's message for us individually, that we need to have the mind of Christ that is knowing what God wants us to do and to speak in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. But listen, that doesn't happen when the culture is influencing and changing us. You see, have you ever, you ever put something in a storage bin, like a little storage container, that had something else in it previously, and it still kind of had a little bit of the flavor of the thing that was in it previously. I had that happen to me once where I put a piece of chocolate cake, and as far as treasured items, a piece of leftover chocolate cake is a treasured item. But part, unfortunately, the thing that had been in there before was cloves of garlic. And what came out, I'm telling you, that you could have killed a vampire with that garlic chocolate cake, which ruined it. I mean, I still ate it, but that's not really the point. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to open his letter and talk about, here's what you do. You've got to be able to live in this world, but not be divided from the values that you want to uphold. So we're going to start in chapter one, in verse one, and here's what we read. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's, when we talk about division and unity, there's three things that we're going to talk about. The first is this, is that if we want to be unified, is that we need to be insulated, not isolated. Now, he ta- Paul talks, he opens, he talks about his calling as an apostle, and then he talks about their calling as saints and how they're called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that most of us don't think of ourselves as saints, But the reality is, is that if you're a Christian, according to the Bible, you are one. 
Now, that doesn't mean that people are going to erect buildings and have uh, stained glass with your image on them. What that means is that word sanctified is this word hagiazo, H-A-G-A-I-A-Z-O. And it means this, that when he says sanctified, he means set apart for a special purpose. When he talks about the word saints, it's the, it's the, it's the noun form of that, of that word, hagios, which means that this person is set apart for a special purpose. Now, I don't know if you have this in your house, but my, we have China in our house that was given that my wife's great-grandparents gave to her grandparents, which gave to her parents, which now we have a bunch of China that we never use. And so this has been passed on since, you know, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln was president when it was purchased. And it's like, hey, we need, we need plates. And what was plates back then now, but here's the problem. My wife and I have been married for 24 years. We have used those plates twice. And yet they are, they are so secured. A bomb could go off in my house and what would survive is the China. Because it, it's, it's it, and here's the thing, is that because it's China, when someone comes over, like, hey, we're going to have a little barbecue at our house. Oh, that's great. Bring out the china. We'll put the hot dogs on there. Like, no, you can't put that. Why? Because it's not common stuff. It's set apart for special purposes. That's how God sees you. You aren't common. That you are called and separated for a special purpose. But here's the challenge that we can have. Because we are called and separated for a special purpose, we can go to an extreme that I call isolation. And what we do in isolation is we say, well, I can't be around anyone who isn't a Christian. I've got to isolate myself from anything that isn't 100% Christian. I can only be around Christian people. I can only listen to Christian music, watch Christian TV, listen to Christian radio, read Christian books, go to a Christian supermarket, and chew my Christian mints. There really are Christian mints. They're called testaments. And uh, here's a picture of them. Yeah, this is a real thing. You can order them on Amazon. I don't recommend it because the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good and you will taste and see that they taste like an air freshener. And so anyway, now, but now, now there's, there's good that can come from this. If you isolate yourself, I mean, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot about God. You're going to be in a safe environment and, and those are all good things. The problem is you're going to eliminate any chance that you have for God to use you to reach someone who's far from God. And I am so glad that every Christian that I knew didn't isolate themselves before I believed. Now, others go in a different direction. They decide to contaminate, and that is they, they uh, will compromise what they believe in, in the spirit of, well, I want to be relevant, and that we have to be wiser than that. And the solution is not to contaminate or to isolate. I believe that there's a third way, and that is to insulate. I grew up in Boston, and the way that you survive long, cold winters is through insulation that keeps the cold out and keeps the warmth in. Now, a couple of years ago, I, was, uh, I got asked to speak at this conference in Virginia Beach, and it was in, like, a, it was in the dead of winter. And so I want to say when we got there, the high was like 20 degrees. The low was, I don't know, like in the 10, 12 degrees. And I, we were packing. My whole family came with me because my kids had never seen snow. I'm like, I'm going to go speak at this event. Let's all go together. So my wife tells me to pack warmer clothes, and I say, Carrie, I grew up in Boston, the cold has no effect on me. I'm impervious. I believe the phrase I used was, I am impervious to the cold. Well, we got there, and when I got off the plane in Richmond, it, the cold was not the delight 
that I remembered. In fact, we had gotten our bags, and uh, now mind you, we got there, it was like 11 or 11.30 at night, and the airport was basic. If you've ever been to get an airport that late, you know it's like basically empty. And so, especially a regional airport like that. So we get there, nobody's there. Uh, we grab our bags, and then the double doors open, and this wind comes through. I, have you ever had this moment where, obviously you're not here somewhere else, and uh, like the wind just like cuts through your body. And that's when I was like, oh, I had that moment. It was freezing. It was wet. And, um, and I had totally overstated my ability to handle the cold. But I didn't want to admit that I was wrong because I am a man. So I kept the whole charade going. And so my wife is asking me, like, the next day, she's like, are you cold? I mean, do you want us to go get you a jacket? And I'm like, are you kidding? My only regret is that I can't speak at this conference shirtless. And... Um, <laughs> I'm just doubling down. And so that night we go to dinner and the only table that they have available is outside. And I'm like, Lord have mercy. I mean, like I can't catch a break. So I have a thin hoodie like this. That's all I'm wearing. And then, but the good thing that I have is I have a scarf on, which is helping. And so my son who is literally not doing well. I mean, he's freezing. He hates every minute. He's like, I like the snow. I just, I can't. I'm not built for this kind of weather. And so anyway, and then, so we're at dinner and then they have one of those little kind of heat lamps and, um, but we're all still freezing. And then my son says, dad, um, I'm so cold. Could I have your scarf? And so, not seeking to show weakness, I'm like, of course, who needs it? And so I give him the scarf. And now, I mean, I, it's like, I, I, so we, we get done with dinner. You can ask my wife this later. So we get done with dinner. And you got to do the thing up north where it's like, hey, I'll go start the car and warm it up. So, and my son comes with me. And we sit in the car, and it's so cold, and we're starting. And Xander's like, Dad, and he's probably about five or six at the time. He's like, Dad, I am so cold. And I grab him by the arms, and I'm like, Xander, I am freezing. I am so cold. I can't even feel my extremities. But don't tell your mom. And so, now, I'll tell you, this has nothing to do with anything, but I've never been able to tell this part of the story. So I'll tell you this because I just found out later that everything was okay. So I'm speaking at this event. Now, one of the things you got to understand is that when you're a communicator, there's always like little distractions that happen. And when you are a seasoned veteran like me, you just keep going no matter what. And so what happens is, is that the room is probably about twice the size. So there's probably eight or 900 people at the event. And so I'm I'm talking, and it's, a, it's mostly pastors and church leaders. So um, I'm speaking at the event, and over on this side, because all the doors to get into the hall were on this side, and I see a whole bunch of people standing. And because, anyway, uh, I see a whole bunch of people standing, and I'm like, wow, look at all these people coming, coming in to hear me. Uh, I'm, I'm like, anyway, which, like, I don't know why I saw people coming in standing. I think it had anything to do with me. It had nothing to do with me. But that's just sometimes I'm a little more self-involved than I should be. And so, well, what happened is, that's not what happened. What happened is, is that there was someone in the audience who passed out. But the problem is, as they were passing out, they knocked somebody else in the head on their way down. 
that person passed out. If you've ever gone bowling, you know what's happening. So there was like, this person goes down, hits their melon, and then now two people are down. So now there's a whole bunch of people like, my goodness, what happened? I've never seen anything like that before. There's two people out cold on the floor. I'm still going because you don't stop. And so anyway, to the point where the guy who was hosting the conference comes up on stage and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And he's like, would you mind stopping? (laughs) Two people need to be carted off via ambulance. And I'm like, seems like an okay reason to stop. (laughs) So anyway, so I go back to the hotel room and my wife says, how did it go? And I'm like, I killed up there. And uh, (laughs) now I've never been able to tell that story because I didn't know if the people were okay, but everybody turned out to be okay because you can't tell stories if people get hurt. Well, they got hurt. Mild maiming is okay as long as everything works out. So anyway, now I've been dying to tell that story for years. I'm sorry. I just had to get it out. So, and you're like, wow, I'm glad I got up for that. So my point is be careful. You don't know what's happening to the people around you. And uh, so stay alert is basically what I'm saying. Now, here's my, here's my point, is that if we want to be people in this world who make a difference in, in the kingdom of God, we've got to be able to learn how to insulate ourselves in such a way that we keep the truths of God in us while we keep the values of this world out. Because every, uh, if every Christian decided to isolate themselves, no one far from God would hear the gospel. We'd all be hiding out, sharing our mints. Um, but we've got to look for opportunities to show God's love in a way that reaches them. Paul, the Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, he said, he said it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. The key to being useful in the kingdom is for us to be in this world and to influence it and not allow it to influence us. And if we do, we become divided from our convictions. Okay, now he goes on in verse four and he says this, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything, in him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you in the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were also called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, if we don't want our community to be divided, then the second thing we have to do is we have to put our gifts to work. Now, what Paul does in verse 3, before he starts talking to the church, is he gives them the common greeting. He says, grace to you, that is the common Greek greeting. And then he says, and peace, uh, grace to you, and peace from God, that is the Hebrew greeting of shalom that he gives. And he commends the church for what they're doing well. Now, there's something important that I want you to note, and that is that Paul's commendation of them. The thing that he talks about in verses four to nine is that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This church had all the bases covered. And that was a testament to the grace of God because that word gifts that he uses several times in these opening verses, the word gift in Greek is this compound word charisma. 
Charis is grace, and then the suffix ma. And then this, the suffix ma in Greek makes whatever is before it tangible. And so what he's saying is that the gifts of God are the grace of God made tangible. That these aren't things that we earned. These are gifts that God has bestowed on us. Now, one of the things that I want you to understand by this text, and it really says a lot to us about what's happening in this church, is not just what he says to the church, but also what he doesn't say to the church. So what I want to do is show you a couple of Paul's other introductions to what he says to them, and you're going to see a clear difference as to what he says to the Corinthians compared to other churches. So when Paul is in uh, writes to the Philippians, which isn't that far from Corinth, here's what he says. I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. What is Paul saying to them? He's thanking them for their friendship and at the very beginning of Paul's ministry, they partnered with him, helping him with whatever they could in his mission. Not too far from Philippi is the city of Colossae. Paul writes a letter to the Colossians and here's what he says. I, I give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all of your love for all the saints. What does he tell the Colossians? He commends them for their faith, their people who believe God, and, that, and their love for God's people. And I'll show you one more, and that is in this, uh, the city of Thessalonica, which is just north of Corinth. He says this. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, Remembering without seeking your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So do you see a pattern here? And the pattern is these churches had experienced God in such a way that they were impacting the world around them. He gets to Corinth and he says, "Here's I, I, I thank God concerning you that God has been so gracious to you to give you a lot of gifts. And that's all he's got. Because he's saying this church was very, very gifted, but they were totally self-absorbed. That's why the only compliment he can come up with is, hey, you guys have all the bases covered when it comes to spiritual gifts. And there's a lesson that I think is important for us, and that is that the gifts that we are given are never for us. They are acts of God's grace for the purpose of bettering the body of believers. Because our gifts are never for us, right? Um, I have a teaching gift. I don't look at myself in the mirror and teach myself because that would be weird, right? Uh, now, I counsel myself every once in a while. I look at myself and I'm like, dude, what happened to you? It was going well and then it just all fell apart, right? You ever look in the mirror and see somebody else? That's frightening. I've looked in the mirror and seen my dad. I did. I was, walk- I was in Bayside one time. He, got- he went off. We were trying to find him. And I'm like, oh, there he is. I saw him out of the corner of my eye. And I turned and it was a full length mirror. I cried that day. And uh, my dad, my dad turned 82 this week. Pretty amazing. And um, what, thank you. I'll send that along. And uh, I really will. He'll appreciate that. He comes here, but he's not here today, but he comes here. And um, I, I'll, the thing that's amazing about my dad being 82 is that he has exercised like five times in his life. Like, and, and, and like, well, how did, you know, what's, people ask him, like, what's the secret? What's your, what's the secret of longevity? And like, and, and he just makes stuff up. I'm like, that, dude, tell him the truth. 
Here's the secret of his longevity. Every day he eats Cuban food. He drinks way more Cuban coffee than he's supposed to. And the only thing he drinks other than Cuban coffee is Coca-Cola, the regular stuff. And so think about that. While we're all out running, drinking our kale shakes, he's knocking back a Coke and, uh, you know, eating rice and beans, laughing at us all. So anyway... I don't know why that upsets me more than it should, but it does. So, <laughs> now listen, here's the point. Whatever your gift is, it is for the benefit of somebody else. That's why we receive it by grace and we use our gifts by grace. That's why Paul is going to spend chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians just talking about the purpose of spiritual gifts. And then he's got a sandwich in between there, chapter 13, and talk about love to hammer home the point that gifts aren't about us. Well, then he says this in verse 10, which is getting more to the crux of why he wrote the letter. He says this, Now I plead with you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or divisions among you, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say I baptize in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. I love that. Like, there is just such a good senior moment going on there that I have. Like, people ask me questions like, what's your middle name? And I'm like, give me a second, it's coming to me. You know, and Paul's like, I don't baptize people. Well, I baptize Crispus and Gaius. Well, the house of Stephanus. Now that I think about it, I don't have any idea who I baptized. That's not really the point. Let's move on. That's why I wrote this thing. Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. Now, here's the third thing, and this is where we're going to begin to make our initial descent. And that is, if we want to be united, then we need to be aligned. Aligned, not divided. Now, the people in the Corinthian church had divided into factions. There were those who followed Paul's teaching because he was the founder of the church. There were those who followed Apollos. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that Apollos was this great preacher in the area and had gathered a big following. And uh, here's the cool thing that you learn about Apollos, that he was really uh, very well spoken in Acts 18. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and became a fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. The thing that I love about Apollos is his humility to keep learning. In Acts 19, he gets to Corinth and then he eventually becomes the pastor after the Apostle Paul. But I think there's a powerful principle here and that is that you don't have to know everything to be used of God. You can just share what you know and learn along the way. Now, Let's be honest, Apollos was missing like an important piece. All he knew 
was the baptism of John. That is, he heard the baptism of John. John saying, hey, get ready. John the Baptist, get ready. The Messiah is coming. And he's like, man, I'm going to help people get ready. He leaves. Starts preaching all over the place. The Messiah is coming. And apparently misses the entire ministry of Jesus. To the point where now years have gone by and this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, are like, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? Like, hey, you know, you're telling people to get ready for the Messiah. Like, uh, he showed up. And he's like, no kidding. And I'm like, that's kind of an important piece of this. And then he, and, and he tells them, anyway, I just think it's so amazing. And so there's people because Apollos was a powerful communicator and because he was the pastor after the Apostle Paul in, in Corinth, they said they were disciples of Apollos. Others said that they were followers of Cephas. Now, uh, Cephas is an Aramaic word. And for to not make it too complicated, Aramaic is a Semitic language, and it's kind of a variation of Hebrew. And so the Aram- uh, Cephas is an Aramaic word for rock, which is the name that Jesus gave to one of his disciples. He gave him, the, in the Greek, it's Peter. And so Peter means rock. His real name is Simon. But he gives him this name, uh, Peter, which means rock. In Aramaic, it means rock. And if you're, if you're, keep it, which is, uh, if you're keeping score, we have a guy named Rocky, we have another guy named Apollos, drop the S, Apollo. If the Apostle Paul looked like Mr. T, we have the makings of a really good movie. So I'm just saying that there's a lot to be said about Rocky III that I don't have time for, but it is, it is possible that it's a perfect movie. Anyway, I'm going to move on. So, and then there were those who said that they were, these, this is like the, I, I, I love these guys. These were like the... Um, they thought they were the most spiritual of the group. They were like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, man. Yeah, man, we only follow Jesus. I don't know why I make them sound like they just left a Grateful Dead concert and uh, they've been smoking out for the last 36 hours. And they're like, yeah, man, we only follow Jesus. We don't answer to human authority. And uh, so I don't, anyway. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why I do that. Um, so, so then Paul starts talking about Unity, don't be, don't be divided. And he says, because when you're divided, look at what happens. He says, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, unless the cross of Christ is made of no effect. And that's what he's going to spend the rest of chapter one talking about, which we're going to look at next time. But I want to take a minute as we close and talk about unity, because we're living in a time where we live in a divided country. Uh, we live in a time where Christians are divided. And one of the things that we've done is that we've bought into something as a culture, where it's like, we can agree on 97% of things, but the 3% that we disagree on, that's what makes us mortal enemies, if we don't agree on, on everything. And, and listen, this is so important. Unity doesn't mean you agree on everything. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. And if you want to have unity in your home, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your workplace then three things have to be true. Here's the first thing, is that we have to agree on the direction that we're headed. We can be different, differing gifts, differing ideas, but if we agree on the direction in which we are going, then we can have tremendous unity because it is impossible to agree 100% of the time. Two people who agree 100% of the time, I can assure you one of them is not thinking. It's just the reality. Couples, how different are you from your spouse? You're very different. I know people, I have friends that are married. And I'm like, how are these people, how are they married? How are they even friends? Like, they're so different. 
Because what happens is when you start dating, you realize how much you have in common. And then the relationship gets more serious, and then you start realizing how different you are, and then you say, wow, opposites attract. And then you get married and find out that opposites attack. And that's (laughs) how it goes. But it's possible. Here's the thing that you learn is that you can agree about certain things, but if you're unified on what's most important and are headed in the same direction, even disagreements can get us to the place that we ultimately want to go. Second thing is that we need to assume goodwill with others. Now, this is important. There can be no unity without trust. If you assume ill will in someone else, there will never be any unity because at your core, you will believe that that other person is out to do you harm. And here's how you assume goodwill. You already know how to do this. Is that, so this is at your, like, let's just say in your family. If someone says something and it can be taken one of two ways, Take it the good way. Now, here's, here's where that is. Now, you know how to do this because you do that with yourself all the time. Where you, and and here's the, there's a word for that. It's called grace. You be gracious with someone else. Now, once again, I tell you that because we are gracious with ourselves all the time. Like, we don't judge ourselves by our actions. No, no, no. We're way, we're way nicer to ourselves than that. We judge ourselves based on our intentions. You know, I intended to do that, and that was a good thing, even though I didn't do anywhere near that. But because I intended to do that, I'll give myself a couple extra points. We do that. But see, if you will learn to be gracious to others, you will have much more unity in your relationships. And by the way, you're going to have a lot more joy as well. Then here's the last thing, is that we need to accept our diverse roles. Once again, unity is not uniformity. Now, my son is 11, and... I have spent, uh, basically, I've spent about the last 10 years becoming an expert at building Legos with him. And I've learned two things about Legos. The people who design Legos are geniuses. And number two, the people who price Legos are completely delusional. Because they're like, how much do we charge for a Lego Ferrari? I don't know how much does a real Ferrari cost. Well, that's a good price. And uh, now, Legos by themselves are kind of unimpressive, like just one Lego piece. And they come in all shapes and sizes. But when you put them together and they each serve their diverse role and their diverse function, it's it's amazing. You see, here's my point. The attacks that come into your life are always attacks to divide. Because the enemy knows. The enemy knows that this principle that Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 3, you'll see it on the screen. And that is, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. This is why hidden agendas are so destructive. This is why gossip is so destructive, because it undermines the unity that God desires. Because there's never growth when there's disunity. We're never pushing the ball forward, doing the thing God created us to do when there's dissension. Instead, and listen, and I know that that's what we desire. We all desire unity. Nobody seeks out division. The problem is we don't do the things or avoid the things that keep division at bay and invite unity. Because listen, if your marriage is divided, your family's in trouble. It doesn't just impact you. Your family's in trouble. If your church is divided, hundreds of families are in trouble. If your workplace is divided, a whole bunch of lives are are, are in trouble. But when there's unity, when there's unity in your family, You have so much joy, it's like a taste of heaven.
When there's unity in your workplace, there's peace about your present life and what's happening in your, in, gonna happen in your future. And when there's unity in your church, let me tell you what happens. There is grace because we believe the best in each other and there's growth because we're helping each other with the gifts that God has given to us. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you for that very fact and that very promise that you've called us to be united. That division never brought us what you desire. Instead, God, you want to use diverse people with diverse gifts to do the great work that you want to do. And that is true for us as a church, for us as a nation. It's true for us as families and us as individuals. So I pray, God, I pray that there would be peace, unity around us as we seek to follow you and we focus on what's most important. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.